Hi, Elena is here, and you're listening to Bilingual Kids Rock Podcast, episode number 34. Welcome to the Bilingual Kids Rock Podcast. This is your place to connect with multilingual families, language experts, and passionate authors from around the world. We share actionable tips and motivational stories. Learn from our experiences so your journey raising multilingual children is enjoyable, manageable, and successful. And I'm so excited to have my guest over today. Mary Pat is a language and speech pathologist. She holds PhD degree in linguistics from Trinity College in Dublin. Right now she's a lecturer, author, researcher, and lover of all things to do with speech, language, and communications. She has over 20 years experience of working with families and 14 years experience teaching in university. Mary Pat is a founder of Talk Nua, where she is helping parents to make communicating, um, to make communicating with their children easier and more meaningful. Her goal is to help parents feel skillful when talking with their children. Mary Pat lives in the gorgeous city of Galway in the west of Ireland with her husband and their little girl. Welcome, Mary Pat. Thank you very much, Elena. It's lovely to be here, and thank you for having me. Yeah. Did I miss anything in introduction? It's quite a list there of all the credit essentials. Yeah, no, it was perfect. Thank you. It was perfect. Yeah. I should I should say that uh, I really appreciate all the advice that you give to parents uh, due to blogging. Um, I am in several, and I know you are in several multicultural and linguistic groups. And looks like you have a great advi- advice for many, many uh, questions that parents ask on those uh, walls, on those social networks. And I'm so excited to ask many questions right now and uh, I know you have lots of experience so I'm very excited. Okay that's great thank you I love the groups actually they're a great forum to have kind of discussion and get what works for different people and to just get different perspectives aren't they? Yeah yeah I I think it's great and uh, some of the groups they definitely have lots of members in there Mm. which helps a lot to to look at things from different ways. And the first question I want to ask, it's probably one of the most asked questions in my experience and one of the biggest fear of all parents, especially of like toddlers, it's do bilingualism cause language delay? And the good news answer for this question is no, it does not. That being bilingual is actually the norm globally. There are more people in the world who are bilingual and multilingual than there are monolingual speakers of a language. It doesn't cause delay in any way, shape or form. And like recent research would say that it doesn't even cause a temporary delay in terms of when, you know, first words emerge. Uh, if the child does, we say, have a diagnosis of a communication problem, that speech or language, being bilingual doesn't make it worse. It doesn't cause the problem. Um, it's just a normal way of life for lots of people. And you're actually in the majority in the world if you are bilingual. So I think that's good news. And to remind yourself to do is actually normal. That's great. It's great news because I know there are a lot of parents they just scared that their child is not talking by the age of two maybe and first thing that's usually to blame is bilingualism. Most of the parents will say like, oh, it's because two languages definitely takes time to sort it out. That's probably the reason. And I think that's a really interesting point too because to, like children are designed to acquire languages, not lang- one language. So two Mm -hmm. isn't actually more complicated than one because their brain is wired to acquire them. And children don't 
um, either approach language from the same perspective as adults do. So they kind of just get on with it and they are not consciously thinking about, we'll say, separating languages or even aware that there are languages. They're just developing as, as normal. So I think it's important to remember that as well. It's not um, more complicated. It's just kind of the way things are. It's the normality. I, I like it. You know, I like that that children actually designed to develop several languages, to acquire several languages. I didn't even think about that, mm-hmm. not just one. And it definitely sometimes it's hard uh, to remember this because here in the United States is predominantly monolingual environment, and having bilingual children, even even bilingual, I'm not talking about thri- uh, trilingual or uh, multilingual, is more of an exception than a norm. Um, at least in the area where we live here in Wisconsin. Mm. It is what? very interesting. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that like in Ireland, it's kind of similar in that like the official languages of the state in Ireland are English and Irish, but Polish is actually the second most commonly spoken language in the country after English. Um, oh. And yeah, and like the city I live in is the most culturally diverse city in the country. So like 19.5% of the population are from a variety of cultures and speak a variety of languages. But you still get the same perception that, you know, monolingualism is the norm. But I think that's just going to take time to change, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So what uh, what is a normal language development for bilingual children? We know that pretty much is the same as monolingual, but what are those milestones? Okay, great question. And I think one thing to bear in mind initially is that early language development in young children is very varied and children um, there's a lot of individual variation at the in terms of the rate at which children do things and also I would say it's very important to remember when I talk about ages and stages it's like they are rough general kind of ideas mm-hmm. they're not like written in stone they're not really that precise so you kind of say at 12 months or so you might expect this um, and the other thing I think to remember about your child's language development is comparison is really not useful. So there's no point in comparing your bilingual child's development to a monolingual English speaking child or a monolingual child in general because it's not the same thing. So you're not comparing like with like. The only place really you could compare is if the child, your child and another child were in the exact same language situation. And even then, no two situations are really alike. So I'd say try not to compare your child with other children. What you're really looking for is a steady rate of progress. So generally, as you said, like the ages and stages tend to be roughly the same. So babies obviously cry and then at about four to seven months or so, you get um, babbling. So they're making lots of different sounds. First words then can emerge anywhere from eight months to 15 months. It depends on what you read. There's again a lot of individual variation in the literature. Um, and how you know it's a first word is when they use the same sequence of sounds to refer to the same thing every time they see it. So, so if the word we say is bottle and they go bapa every time they look at the bottle or see a bottle or want the bottle, then you go, oh yeah, that's a first word. And first words tend to be nouns. Verbs are the hardest part of a language to learn. And the nouns tend to be of kind of concrete objects in their immediate environment, names of people that they're familiar with. They need to have 50 words before they start putting the two words together into things like, you know, mommy gone or daddy gone or whatever. And the, by 50, by 18 months, rather, excuse me, they should have about 
50 words okay but don't panic um, again because there is kind of a range but um, once they have the 50 words they can put the two words together so by age two to three they should be putting two to three words together mm-hmm. um, and then basically once they've got the two and three words together then you get three and four words together and things just gradually get kind of longer and more complicated as time goes on yeah, I like how you stressed out on the progress and definitely not compare it to someone to see if your child is actually making progress. Mm-hmm. I just remember it's sort of like personal story. My son did not start talking until two years old. And at two years old, he said one single word, no, which in Ukrainian, ni. Okay. Uh, it was like, it was a celebration, but it definitely, I remember that, that, you know, psychology, uh, it just I saw other kids chatting away, you know, they were putting together sense like, what is wrong with my child? You know, why isn't he talking? He's already two. It was that short period of time when I was really stressful about his um, uh, speech. But uh, I agree that we need uh, definitely not to look uh, at other children, but see if there is a progress at all or not. Yeah. And what you can do then is you can like write down what they are saying and like the their first words won't sound like a grown-up's words. So let's say, for example, it's very common if your language has a consonant at the end of words that they leave out the final consonant. So they might say, mm-hmm. duh for cup or cup for cup. That's totally normal. Um, there was something else I was going to say there about the uh, um, first words, the comparisons, the writing it down. Oh, yeah, and actually what's really important too before the first words is their intent to communicate. So mm-hmm. if they want something, for instance, they want to be lifted up, they might lift their hands. Like that's communication. So it's not just about the talking. It's about how are they communicating their needs? How are they showing they're interested in something? How are they saying that they don't want something? Are they waving hello, waving goodbye? So you get like nonverbal stuff as well before they ever start to use words. And the main thing is, yeah, that you see steady progress. I would, If you weren't seeing steady progress, I would be concerned. Yeah, well, I wish I could share it when I had my son, like when he was two. <laughs> I know, it's very hard. It caused a lot of stress, but uh, hopefully we can uh, help a lot of parents to sort out their uh, speech uh, that exactly. kids right now with this interview. But what are we talked about? Uh, we talked about all the uh, language milestones, but is there any other signs of some problems that might be uh, with a child language? Is there any other signs that we can be aware of? Absolutely. So we'll say in relation to the first words, right? If by 18 months your child doesn't have first words, what you can do then is really commit to spending about like half an hour a day really focused on talking with your child. Not asking questions, but doing lots of kind of describing what's going on. And then watch to see over a number of weeks, you know, does this work? Because sometimes that does kind of do the trick and it speeds things up a bit. Um, The American Speech and Hearing Association um, have a really nice uh, page called Identify the Signs and where they give you ideas of what to look for when something is wrong. So, for example, if your child from birth and older doesn't smile or interact with others, if they don't babble at four to seven months, like some babies can be very silent. Um, If they make only a few sounds or gestures by seven to 12 months, if you see they don't understand what you're saying, um, if they're only saying a few words in the kind of 12 to 18 month period, if they had fewer than 50 words by their second birthday, that would certainly be kind of reason to see a speech and language therapist. And like in relation to seeing the speech and language therapist, I, 
I think, and I know I'm biased because I am one, but you're better to actually go and see them and then be reassured that everything is fine and get a couple of tips for improving communication than to leave it until you're then it's a bit late and you're kind of on a waiting list. Now, I know it does depend from country to country about, you know, the um, ages at which children are seen, but the speech and language therapist can assess a baby from as young as like eight months. Um, other sign, yeah. Like other signs would be, for instance, that they are not putting words together to make sentences from once they have the 50 words, let's say, up to kind of age two to three, if they're not putting words together. Um, if they are, like the mispronouncing of words is kind of tricky because a lot of that is typically developing. But let's say they are three and they are still leaving the last consonant off a word, yeah, that would be kind of an indication. Mm -hmm. Or by age three, they should be about 85% understandable by unfamiliar listeners. So if they're not, if you can't understand them, then that's definitely kind of a, um, a bit of a, a red flag because generally the family, the immediate family do tend to understand the child even when they are mispronouncing words. Um, so that by three, most people um, should be able to understand about 85% of what they say. Yeah, yeah, those those are really really great uh, things to look for. Um, you know, we talked about that uh, bilingual and monolingual uh, children pretty much develop in the same pace. But if you do need to be evaluated, I mean, your child needs to be evaluated. You find we find a lot of advice to go with a, a specialist who is actually specializing with bilingual children. Why that? Why not uh, just a regular speech pathologist or therapist? Well, a great question, and again, a kind of a tricky one because there's it can be hard to find a speech and language therapist who does specialize in bilingualism or who has a lot of experience of working with bilingual families. And like when I think about it, in some respects, the therapist doesn't need a lot of experience with working with bilingual families as long as she or he is open to like what is best practice in the area. Um, and bilingual children, because they are bilingual, they need need to be assessed in, in both of their languages because they need both of the languages to become successful communicators. And also, if we say, for example, I'm just thinking about a situation with, say, in Ireland where both parents are Polish, so Polish is the language of the home and English is the language of the majority community, there's no point in just assessing the child in English because you're only assessing their English proficiency then, which isn't going to be representative of their ability in general because mm -hmm. their dominant, we say, language is Polish. So they need assessment in both. Um, and they also need assessment in both to kind of come up with a map of, well, who is speaking what language to the child and in what context? So do they need the language for education purposes? Is it for religion? Is it for family members? And to look at what do they need the languages for and to get a kind of a, a fair representation um, of their ability in language. Yeah, great. Thank you. Uh, now that we know that, you know, when kids develop normally and we talked about what is normal, what is not, you know, one of the things that many people are actually a little bit scared of and don't feel comfortable is about their children mixing languages together. Is this normal or how do you deal with the mixing languages? Okay, great question. And again, well, good. I think this is good news. That yes, it is natural for the languages to mix. They do kind of interact with each other. Uh, and the research would kind of show that children mix their languages to the degree to which they are exposed to language mixing. So if the parents mix, they're going to mix. Um, and also research has shown that children in school, for, for instance, will mix the languages in informal tasks, like when they're chatting with friends, but in formal 
formal academic tasks, they don't do the mixing because we say the language of education tends to be kind of one language. So they're learning, they need to learn the rules of mixing and bilingual adult speakers mix. So they need to be, they need to learn when it's okay to switch and when it's not okay to switch. Another issue really is how much does the mixing bother you as the parent? Um, Mm -hmm. And like, I think really, I personally, I like the mixing because I think it's actually really interesting and that the, yeah. the mixing is rule governed so that like there is a logic to the mixing so that they might keep the grammatical structure of one language and then just put in the vocabulary from the other language. So those mm-hmm. that mixing makes sense. And also mixing is part of identity and signaling who's in, who belongs to a group and who is outside of a group. So it has a lot of different functions. So I've been trying to just accept it. And the research also shows that children who are exposed to mixed input it doesn't disadvantage them in terms of becoming bilingual and becoming proficient in both of the languages. So it doesn't interfere with their bilingual language development. So mm-hmm. I, I think what I'd be inclined to say to that is, you know, if you're worried about it or if it bothers you, to kind of maybe t- take a moment to think about, well, what is it about it that's bothering you? Um, mm-hmm. Why does it bother you? I wouldn't kind of criticize them for the, the mixing or point out the, mis- the mistakes because they're not really mistakes. It's just evidence of language systems interacting. It's very kind of natural. Um, and if you would, if you'd like to go for a more kind of uh, keeping one language in an activity, then things like singing songs or book reading or story reading, they tend to be naturally situations where we don't mix. So that would kind of keep the lines a bit kind of separate. Um, with I know a lot of people like the one person one language approach, and uh, like that's fine if it suits you. But from my point of view, I think it's kind of hard to be consistent and keep really clear boundaries about language. So I, my, my opinion, I suppose, would be don't get stressed out if you can't manage it because it's not necessarily, it hasn't been shown to be like the best way to do it. It is a way to become bilingual, but it isn't the only way or necessarily the most effective way. Yeah, so basically parents need, uh, in case of mixing, parents need to, work on themselves versus trying to fix something with a child or exactly or just accept that mixing happens and like for some people it just it just doesn't bother them and they just get on with it and they don't um attend to the mixing but if it bothers you i think yeah you have to look at well what is my input like and in general you only ever have control over what you say so mm-hmm. if if you'd like to decrease the mixing in the child, you could look at, okay, am I mixing and could I reduce my mixing and then go for the storytelling or the book reading or the singing to try and keep, keep things maybe a bit more separate if you want to. Yeah, yeah. But I think as well, you see, oh, thank you. I think as well, you see, I'm really a Fifty Shades of Grey kind of thinker because <laughs> I tend to see things in kind of grey rather than absolute black and white for a lot of things. And black you know? and so white. Yeah, so that's going to be the kind of advice I will give by and large. Yeah, that's great. I've noticed with my children, they do mix when they talk to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's it's exactly what you say. You know, you kind of almost like let it need to let it go. But I know exactly that they can understand who they need to speak clearly without mixing. For example, if they talk to uh, the person who does not speak their majority language, like my family, or they understand that they need to speak one language. They can't bring words from English into that. And it's like, okay, that's that's great. That's fine. That's why I have language there. So they can, they have an ability to speak to both of the walls. People Absolutely. With 
And like, it's amazing how early they pick up on who is monolingual and who is bilingual. Like as mm-hmm. young as kind of 18 months, two years, they know oh, so-and-so only speaks one language or yeah, this other person mixes so I can mix with them. And that part of the language learning process is getting it wrong or, you know, and realizing, oh, hang on, that didn't work. So I need to change what I did. You know what I'm saying? That you can, and you can only, they can only work out those rules by actually doing the mixing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's really helpful. I think p- parents will reconsider if they're really stressed out about mixing. They'll think about it a little bit more and just yeah. just do something comfortable and come uh, for themselves and not to be stressed out about it. One of other issues that I've noticed uh, people ask about is about stuttering and uh, what, how to deal with stuttering in multilingual children. Okay, another great question. And basically, like a lot of children go through what's called normal non-fluency or developmental stuttering, it's called, between the ages of maybe one and a half to two and up to four or five years of age, depending again on where you read. Um, and basically, it's kind of a reflection of the system is just like language and speech may be exploding in development and then the motor kind of system isn't necessarily in sync. Um, the normal kind of stuttering will sound like they'll repeat a word. So it might be like mama, 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 or a phrase like I'm going to, going to, going to, or it might be a part of a word like, 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 like this. And mm-hmm. generally, when it starts, it is very effortless. There is no tension. They don't even know they're doing it. So it just kind of happens. And most children, about 80% of the children who go through this, do grow out of it. It can last for a couple of weeks. It can go away and then come back again. And my own daughter like, went through several periods of this stuttering for a week or two maybe even longer than it would have gone for maybe six months. And then suddenly when she was going through like a growth spurt, I'd notice, oh, yeah, it's happening again. Um, and the main thing I think in relation to the stuttering is to like there's an expression that stuttering begins in the ear of the listener. So mm-hmm. it's really important, I think, not to communicate your anxiety to your child about how they're talking. Um, it is a natural part of development. And what you need to do is stay calm yourself. Don't communicate non-verbally or look alarmed when they start doing it. Respond to what the, the message they are trying to tell you, not the form of it. It really doesn't matter how it sounds, just what are they trying to communicate to you? I noticed, for instance, that myself and my husband speak extremely quickly. And our little girl, was, she was just trying to keep up with us. So what I did, <laughs> the poor thing, you know. So the, what I did then was I started to speak, speak more slowly myself. Mm-hmm and just slow my own rate. Other advice is to make sure you do everything in general in a kind of a calm, not rushed kind of a manner. Um, the Another thing to do is um, kind of reduce your questions. So rather than asking a question, you make a statement like, oh, I wonder how was school today? Or you look like you had fun at school, we say, and then you just wait. Yeah. And like the main thing to do as well, I think, is not to correct them. Don't say to them, oh, slow down start again, take a deep breath, because they are communicating unconsciously. And if you start doing that kind of thing, you actually bring their attention to the stuttering and maybe make them anxious and tense. And you really want to keep the whole thing as like natural and not tense as possible. And then the other kind of advice in that situation is to do like a five minute kind of quality time where you turn off all your devices and everything. You pick five minutes. 
they pick the activity. So it could be, you know, making something with Lego, playing with Play-Doh, drawing a picture, and you just spend like really nice quality time communicating. You don't ask questions. You keep your rate nice and slow, natural. You don't comment again on how they are talking, but that they get nice quality time, unhurried um, time together where they're not kind of competing for attention for in relation to communication. And again, if in doubt, see your speech and language therapist. And I would say the National Stuttering Foundation have a really good website with great kind of tips and advice and a checklist for kind of risk factors and everything. So that's a really good resource for parents. Great. I, uh, I want to add that we'll include all the links that we talked about in the show notes so parents can follow them and read all the guidelines on all the websites. Okay. But I just love how much goodness comes from being calm and stress-free and not to be really, you know, concerned so much. It just looks like it helps in so many cases with so many uh, different, not disorders, but different sort of um, little issues that can appear at some periods of time in a child's development. Absolutely. Definitely. We need all to take a class on how being calm and stress-free. <laughs> exactly, as much as we can. <laughs> Yeah. As much as we can. Yeah, sometimes my, um, I do yoga sometimes and I bring, um, you know, some of the, what I've learned in class of yoga to my children. It's like, okay, if we're stressed out, let's do tree pose or something like that. And I kind of do it like a fun, but they find it also funny and uh, helps a lot, you know, when well, people laugh. Absolutely. And that's really nice too in relation to, we say, the child's who's stuttering that they it's that's a really nice thing to do to give them a way to calm down in general you know because sometimes if they get very excited they may start to stutter but if they have another kind of strategy for like calming down then it doesn't you don't have to focus on the speech and telling them to calm down yeah and the other thing that's really nice as well is that you can acknowledge the emotion so if they are very excited or upset that you say for example oh that sounded very upsetting you didn't like that yeah. Or you you sound really cross about that or really angry about that. It, it upsets you. It hurts your feelings so that you acknowledge the emotion. That's a really good communication strategy as well. Yeah, acknowledging the emotion. That's, that's great. Yeah, don't, don't jump to advice right away or what to do. Just acknowledge what a child feels. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. Yeah, and since we started to talk about all the conversations, and I know your blog is mainly focused on uh, helping parents to have a skillful conversations with a uh, with a child and we've talked a little bit in pre-interview what uh, what does the word nua means if you could tell us a little bit more uh, than, uh, the story behind your uh, the name of your blog okay so the blog is talknua.com and nua is the irish word for new and the whole kind of idea is about new way or new ways of thinking about how you talk with your child and new kind of strategies to try like pausing like waiting like not asking too many questions like commenting and so on and so forth so um just a new perspective really on on parent child interaction that's great, and I, I was going through a lot of your uh, blog posts, and I find so much helpful information and so many great ways to communicate with children. Uh, and one of the questions I have is about meaningful conversations, and I, I 
my son is 11 years old and sometimes you know when they're little they're always around you and it's sometimes easier to find what to talk about but when they become teenagers and my son is is more of an introverted person he is all about what is in his world uh but how do you think meaningful conversations with the children do you think they are a real struggle for families right now and how do you think they can help having meaningful conversations with our children yeah, another great question, Elena. And I do think because everybody is so busy and our lives are so busy that it is hard to have a meaningful conversation when, you know, you have to rush to school or to work or whatever it is. Um, so I think a couple of things that are useful, I find anyway, is, for example, with my little girl, now she's five, so it's obviously a different phase, um, but being interested in what they're interested in. So let's say, for example, if she's into watching Peppa Pig, I generally watch it with her, and then we have a discussion about the episode afterwards, or if something happens in the episode, I might say to her afterwards, what did you think of that? And like really seek out her opinion and really like listen to what she has to say. And like they love that, you know, that sense that they have something to offer that you didn't know, with, say, for instance. Um, or I have a friend who had a little girl who was quite kind of hard to connect with. And I had a genuine question for her one day on foot of a conversation I had with a boy about is the tooth fairy a boy or a girl? And of course, he thought it was a boy because he was a boy. So I said to her, well, what do you think? And we had this great chat about whether it was a boy or a girl, and maybe it could be both. And it totally changed, like, the dynamic. We had this incredible conversation. So I think asking them genuine questions that open up conversation, like, what did you think about that? Um, being interested in what they are interested in. Um, again, putting away the device and like, and I know it's so hard because I do it myself. I see her occupied with something. And I go, okay, great. I'll wash the dishes or I'll start the dinner, you know, exactly. yes, you know, for, rather than going, okay, I'm actually just going to go and sit near her for five minutes and I'm not going to say anything, but I'm just going to be there and maybe try and join in or if she initiates something then kind of you know take the lead in the conversation and often you find as well that you know if you're driving somewhere and they're in the back seat or whatever they might actually start to tell you something spontaneously without you pursuing it um mm -hmm. or at the bedtime routine very important to think as well so like reading stories at bedtime or just having a bit of quiet time where there's an opportunity then for a conversation to kind of open up but in relation to your the eleven year old and I don't I really don't know anything about teenagers, um, but I'm I was reading a really good book called Love Bombing and the idea in Love Bombing is that you basically spend a specific amount of time, it's not quality time now, but you uh, with the child, either you go away for a night with it together or you decide, Okay, we're going to go somewhere for the afternoon. They decide where they where you're going to go, they decide everything are going to do and that you are going mm -hmm. to do so they get an experience of total control because a lot of the time they have control over very little and also you kind of um tell them a lot during that time that you love them and how important they are to to you and that um and you give them lots of physical affection as well and the mm -hmm. idea is that like it really um is beneficial for the relationship for them to to feel unconditional love for a period of time and also total control um, and it's it's only within that love bombing time frame you do the total control and then you go back to your normal kind of, you know, setting boundaries and everything after that. But I thought that was, I haven't done it myself now, but I'm planning to do it. A great idea for like real quality time with your child. And I think you just have to do it consistently. And like I said, with the working with children who stuttered, that five minutes 
if you pick five minutes, there's no distractions and you give them the gift of your undivided attention. I mean, they love that. Yeah, that's that. It's a great, you know, to see how much actually we don't need a whole lot of time. You know, like you talk about like five minutes, but it can have such a huge impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially for if, if it's you are talking to a child in a minority language, in a second language, it definitely gives you almost like plenty of opportunity to connect with your child and they will easier, much easier follow your language or what you whatever you talk there mm. if you actually connect it on an emotional level. Oh I agree and that like to actually say another thing you can do is commit for the five minutes that you're not going to say anything but you are going to listen. Like really listen to everything they are saying. You're not going to kind of see it as an educational opportunity I'm totally guilty of doing that and trying to teach something I'm guilty of that too <laughs> or you're not going to use it as an, an opportunity to preach about something but that you're really going to listen with every fibre of your being which is really hard because we're used to splitting our attention on so many different things at the same time um, mm-hmm. that like that would really really I think revolutionise your relationship with your child and you'll get to know them really well if you actually commit to doing that on a regular basis. That's such a great advice. I'm going to implement it with my uh, 11-year-old because it's definitely having, you know, little girls around me all the time and they demand a lot of attention. It's like, well, he's independent. He, is, he can do things. I need to remember to almost have to schedule it, you know, just go yeah. to the calendar and schedule, hey, this night is just for me and him or for, I know, for my husband and him. For- yeah, absolutely. Oh, please let me know how you get on. I'd be dying to find out. Yeah, sure. It's going to be, I'll schedule it. Right now we have a spring break, so he's kind of around me all the time, but it's definitely a little bit easier. But when he goes to school, I will make sure that I schedule something in the middle of the week just to do with him. Fantastic. Whatever he likes to do. Great. Thank you so much for this awesome advice. You're very welcome. You also have a fun post about conversation killers or some some things that we say that basically kills the conversation on its route. Uh, What are those and how parents can avoid them in their communication with children? Okay, and I think, again, parents or adults, not just parents, but adults in general, tend to ask children an awful lot of questions and questions that we would never, like, ask another adult um, and that we tend to kind of rely on this kind of technique to try and get conversation going, but it does tend to kind of kill it, particularly when the questions we ask are only allow really for, like, a yes-no answer or a one word. So how was school? Fine. What did you do? Nothing. Um, so they kind of just lead to like a cul-de-sac and not, it doesn't go anywhere and it's very frustrating. And even though I've written the blog post about the conversation killers and I've worked for years to try and get them out of my own communication, I do them all the time. <laughs> so don't beat yourself up over them. They are hard to change. So what you can do instead is um, make a statement like, when you're picking your child up from school, for example, you could say, oh, you look like you had fun today. And then you just pause and you wait. Um, Or you might tell them something like very brief about something happened that happened to you. Like I remember when my daughter was about, I'd say, two and a half, and I had gone to the library and somebody had thrown eggs against the inside of the library door. So I came home anyway to tell her the story. I'd say I got about six months out of that story. (laughs) How many times? She said, tell me the story. 
story of Bernard and the eggs. And like, she was really fascinated by this boy and how he had done this bold thing, you know. Um, so that can be a nice thing is if you share, because to get a story, you generally need to share a story. So if you tell them a story, then it opens the way for them to give you a story. Um, and um, you could say things like, I'd love to hear about your day. Or you, yeah. you know, you can say yes or no to that, right? Exactly. You gotta, you need to tell something about your day. Yeah, and or statements like, "I wonder what so and so was wearing today," or "I wonder was so and so at school today," or "I wonder were they were they sick today," or whatever. Because also that shows that you're really tuned into what's going on in their school environment. We say, for instance, and I think the like my experience as well is that my husband picks up my little girl, so by the time I I get home from work, school is no longer relevant. So there's no point in me really saying to her, how was school? Because she's in the present moment and she's kind of moved on. Now, I would mm -hmm. notice to say at bedtime, maybe she might initiate something about school and tell me something. But generally, it, it, I kind of have to wait because the, t the moment has passed, really. The moment for that kind of conversation is really if you're, when you've picked them up and it's relevant to them right there and then. Ah, oh, that's a good good advice. Actually, my husband has a habit of asking how was school today right at the dinner time, which is around 7 p.m. for us. And I've noticed that there's no conversation going out of that question. Yeah, and it's really interesting. <laughs> they don't even remember. Exactly. You know? like, what did you learn at school today? And they'll be like, ah, uh, nothing. <laughs> I know. Why do we send you to school? You didn't learn anything there. Exactly. And then you can ask other questions like, what questions did you ask today? I remember, oh, I, which is, yeah. I think it's a really nice question. I came across that somewhere now. I can't remember where. Um, so what questions did you ask? And the what did you learn is a good question to kind of get things going. But again, I think part of the problem is that children are very present moment. So as you say, the moment is kind of gone and like a lot of school days are the same. So unless something like really dramatic happened or really meaningful happened, there isn't going to be um, what you call it. There isn't going to be like something to report, you know, uh, and mm -hmm. then sometimes as well, I think you have to we have to accept that they don't have to tell us everything that went on. Yeah. And that and maybe sometimes silence is it's OK to be silent. But of course, as a, as a parent, you really want to know, is everything okay? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I remember when, uh, again, my son is my first child. So when he went to school, I couldn't, it was, I couldn't settle on the idea that I'm not with him all day long. And I don't understand what's going on with him for like four or five hours. And it was like, I really wanted to know every little detail. What did you eat for lunch? What did you do right after recess? What about nap time? You know, and, and he was like, I just want to play with my Legos. <laughs> I know. All these questions. <laughs> but it's so hard to let them go, as you say, when you're so used to them being in your, like, or in your world. And you know everything that they're doing. And then suddenly they have their own world and they're alone in it. It's very challenging as a parent. Yeah, yeah. Well, we probably need to accept the fact that kids are growing up and they'll have their own lives at some point. So we need to slowly uh, have a good conversations, but definitely give them a little bit of more space. Yes, absolutely. That's uh, that's really, I love this conversation because there are so many actionable tips that I just want to get up, run and do something, you know, and sit by my kids while they're coloring and do something yes, like that. Yeah. And again, I think as well, you don't need anything fancy. You yeah, 
like very simple thing. It's really your, the, the quality of your attention and your time that they really value, and you don't need the fancy toys. And, and I'm I'm totally 100% agree with that. We don't need to load our houses with educational toys. It just you is enough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, one uh, another question I had, there is actually so many questions. I'm kind of trying to go through them because we're running, slowly running out of time. Okay. But uh, I had a question about language exposure. We talked about, you know, being silent and talking, but still we want to uh, bilingual families and raising multilingual children, we do want to incorporate a language into our daily lives and for our children to have more minority language exposure. How can we do this? How can we incorporate in our everyday lives? Okay, so we say in general, again, you really don't need anything fancy and like language learning opportunities are everywhere. So we say for you know young children, for babies and toddlers, and for we say your preschool children, a lot of it is like describing what is going on as it's going on. So if you are dressing them, you name what you're putting on as you're putting it on. Um, if you're feeding them, you talk about you know what the food, what food is coming, and so on and so forth. If you're out for a walk. Walk, you just describe what you're seeing around them. You draw their attention to, like, I remember walking with my little girl in the park, and she was only a baby at this stage, but I was saying, like, oh, can you hear the water running in the stream? And then she was in the buggy, but we just stop and, you know, listen. Like, oh, do you hear the birds singing? So drawing their attention, you know, to what's going on around them. Um, books are a fantastic um, resource. It's, we'll say for minority language um, speakers, you might have trouble getting books in your minority language but actually you could just use any book and you don't have to read the story word for word mm -hmm. you don't have to translate it you just tell the story as it's happening in the picture using the pictures you don't have to use the um the text you know text mm -hmm. uh, other things that you can do are like play hide and seek with some objects so again like i did this with my little girl she was four and a half at this stage and we just had a bag of I got whatever was in the kitchen we were on holidays and it was like maybe a wooden spoon a piece of tissue paper um, maybe a little ball whatever it was and we did like two things one was where you put your hand in the bag and you picked something and you kind of described what it was like oh this feels cold this feels hard I think it's made out of metal oh I think it's a spoon and then you pull it out and you go oh yeah it's a spoon <laughs> and like she loved this and then you could take the spoon hide the spoon somewhere and then when they find the spoon you say oh I hid the spoon under the sofa it was under the sofa so you're giving them the prepositions kind of vocabulary then you can do oh, sorry that's my uh, email popping up there you can um, like your junk mail you could cut out the pictures from the junk mail and make your own vocabulary book um, where you, you kind of group things together, so vegetables go together, fruit go together, furniture, toys, whatever, and just look at the book. Or you could do books of photographs of family members, especially if you've mm -hmm. got people living you know, all over the world, and just sit together and let them turn the pages, chat about what's happening in the books. Um, or who the people are and stories about them. Like it really is just, I suppose, tuning into the opportunities that are all around you, really. And then we'll say for early readers, you can do things like um, drawing their attention to the exit sign in a building. Um, mm -hmm. Or if you are somewhere like there's a road sign and you just point out the road sign. If you're driving along, like again, just identifying kind of road signs and what do they mean. Um, really simple stuff that doesn't cost anything, only kind of a bit of observation. Just observation, that's, yeah, just great look around you. 
Yeah. Now I have actually for minority language users a, a free ebook called Twenty Five Ways to Make Them Love Your Language and I have a lot more ideas and that so if anybody wants it just uh, go over to or email me probably at marypat at talknua.com and I'll send you a copy there's no problem yeah that's a great book I actually went through it and got lots of great ideas to uh, to use with my own children so definitely so if, for people to get that book they just need to email you right yeah at marypat so at, at talknua.com mm-hmm. yeah Yep. Well, uh, we'll include email as well in show notes. So, dear listeners, if you want this book, I'm sure you want this because everyone's just thinking, I want those 20 ways, you know. <laughs> and uh, those definitely lots of great ideas that you can start implementing right now. And and as you say, you don't need to buy expensive things, toys or uh, props or something uh, for that. You just need to be just there with your child. Absolutely. And in relation to the toys, you know, for children's kind of development of their imagination, they're actually better off to use things that are not, they're called non-representational objects. So they're better off to use a cardboard box and pretend it's a television or a piece of paper and pretend it's an iPad. That's better for their imagination than actually having, with say, the toy TV or the toy kitchen or whatever it is because they're having to really use something that's not related to the idea to pretend it's something else. Yeah. My girls are in um, American Dolls right now. They're just obsessed with them. And definitely for American Dolls, you can, I don't know if you've ever been United States American Doll store. It's just, every you can find every little thing for American Doll. Everything is made already, you know, whatever. There is a figure skater, there are gymnasts, everything. Uh, but we do have a rule sort of we did get them American dolls and maybe some little things but they always want okay I want a living room with a TV like just you said okay how can we make that so we always keep the boxes and everything and they actually love it much more what Mm -hmm. they made compared to actually when you get it for them you know to get something like within like one day they forget all about it but if they made it with their hands and they put lots of work into it they cherish it you know they love it yeah and it's just so lovely to see their imagination taking off like that where anything can become something else and stand for something else and like language is a set of symbols so this really is good for language development because they're operating at a symbolic level which is what language is great um Mary Pat, thank you so much for your advice today. Uh, I definitely will include all the information, everything that we mentioned in the show notes so people can follow. And we can find you. Your blog is uh, TalkNua, right? It's www.talknua.com, right? Yep. Okay. That's where you can find And definitely check out Mary Pat's blog because it's just full of great advice and you can learn something new for you and implement already now, just you know, this instant when you read about it. Uh, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate your advice. It was a pleasure to talk about all things language today. Oh, thank you, Elena. I really enjoyed it as well. And I'd just like to say if anyone has like a challenge for bilingual families is that each situation is unique. So often there isn't like general kind of advice you can give. So if you do have a very specific question about your situation, if you contact me through the blog um, or email me at marypat at talknua.com, I will write a post for you to address your specific question great thank you it's 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 a good idea definitely there are so many families in different situations mm-hmm. that you do want to talk kind of specific and i found a lot of people actually ask specific questions to their families and their languages as well Absolutely. so 
take advantage of this offer and uh, email Mary Pat and she'll uh, she'll get back to you. Thank you so much, Mary Pat. Enjoy you your so weekend. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you so much, Elena. I look forward to chatting to you again. Sounds good. Talk to you. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Was this information useful? Don't you wish you would have found it sooner? Well, to help other parents find bilingual kids rock and spread our positive message, please subscribe and consider leaving a review and rating on iTunes. You see, your reviews and subscription information is how iTunes determines what's good, what's bad, and what they should share with new listeners. We really appreciate your help. We can't grow without your support. To leave a review, log into iTunes, go to the Bilingual Kids Rock podcast, and click the Ratings and Reviews tab. Then rate us, five stars being good, and let us know what you enjoyed about the show. We'll even highlight your reviews in future podcasts. Again, thank you for helping us grow and reach more bilingual families just like yours.